The Mortification of the Flesh, Chapter 1. An introduction to the text and at least some of the doctrines it contains. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Romans chapter 8 verse 13. What Moses said to Israel in Deuteronomy 30 verse 19, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live, is both the sum and scope of the subject I would like to address. I would invite your serious attention and consideration of this treatise, for it contains matters of great importance, matters of life and death. Quote, If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Close quote. Now we come to the context. The chapter from which our text is taken contains the great charter of a Christian, in which are listed the many privileges of believers, and yet among them are mingled and interspersed many fearful threatenings and communications, I'm sorry, combinations, which are threatenings. Our text is one of these threatenings. Quote, if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die, close quote. The great scope of the Apostle in this 8th chapter of the Romans is to stir up and press believers toward walking in a manner worthy of their justification. Though Christ has accomplished everything for us with regard to our justification, yet we must do something as well. Though Christ justifies us from the guilt of sin, we must likewise labor to be freed from the filth of sin. And the Apostle presses this exhortation home upon us by three arguments. Number one, in Romans chapter 8 verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, Brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. No, we are debtors to the Spirit, to live after the Spirit. We are indebted to God and thus obligated to mortify our sins and corruptions, and it is part of an equity and common honesty to pay what we owe. Number two, he presses it upon them by the sad consequence of their not walking in a manner worthy of their justification. Quote, if ye live after the flesh, you shall die. Close quote. Number three, he presses them to it by the great benefit and advantage that will result from the performance of this duty. If ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. I shall not spend much time upon the explanation of the words of the text, for they are certainly quite plain and obvious to everyone. An introduction to the text. Well, what is meant by living after the flesh? If ye live after the flesh. 
All men that are alive live in the flesh, but no man should live after the flesh. For if you live after the flesh, you are following its sinful motions and the corrupt dictates of nature. To live after the flesh implies these three things. Number one, to live after the flesh implies continuance and constancy in the ways of sin. Our text does not say, if you do after the flesh, you shall die. For even the best of God's children sin. Yet they do not live after the flesh. That is to say, they do not make a trade of sin. To live after the flesh connotes a continued act of sin. Number two. To live after the flesh implies complacency and delight in sin. Well, men are accustomed to rejoicing in life, and so to, quote, live after the flesh, close quote, suggests both a delight and a complacency in sin. Number three, to live after the flesh implies a great deal of industry and labor in the ways of sin. Now, it's one thing for sin to follow after you, but quite another for you to follow after it. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, the apostle says, quote, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, well, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, close quote. Sin runs after and overtakes a godly man. But a wicked man runs after and overtakes sin. It's one thing to be dogged by corruption, and another for you to run after sin and satisfy the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Thus, to live after the flesh denotes constancy, complacency, and industry in the ways of sin. The corrupt dictates and motions of the body are called flesh for these reasons. Number one, because sin is in the flesh, as well as in the spirit. The members of the body are just as corrupt as is the soul. James chapter 3, verse 6. Number two, because sin is as dear to the natural man as his own flesh, and hence it is compared to the right eye, the right hand, and so forth. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30, Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Number three, because sin is acted out by the flesh, and being the instrument of acting out the sin, it is thus called by the name of it. Sin was in us as soon as we put on flesh, and will be in us as long as we live in the flesh. In Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, David says, quote, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, close quote. 
and sin will remain in us as long as we live in this world. Romans chapter 7 verse 24. And now we come to the result of living after the flesh, or an explanation of it. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Die! Well, that is good news, as it is appropriate for a man that takes his swing in sinful delights and pleasures, that he might die like a beast, that there might be an end of him. But this must also be understood to mean that the soul will die eternally. Ye shall die. Meaning, ye shall incur damnation if you live after the flesh. Now we come to an objection. But here some may ask how the apostle could say that those who live after the flesh shall die. For elsewhere we are told that the damned in hell shall live perpetually in those torments. Mark chapter 9 verse 44. And here's the answer. Though the wicked shall live in hell, their damnation is called death for two reasons. Letter A. Because in scriptural terms, an existence which is not accompanied by comfort does not deserve the name of life. The scripture expresses a doleful and a dismal state by labeling it death. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 6. Letter B. It is called death because they are estranged and separated from God, who is life itself. Well, what does it mean to mortify the deeds of the body? And again, we'll quote the verse. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Now observe here. You may sin by your own strength, but you cannot mortify sin except by the strength of the Spirit. Mortify the deeds of the body. That is, to keep under and to subdue the power and predominancy of of sin. If you mortify the deeds of the body, those sins that are acted out in the body, then you shall live. Not everlastingly here, but forever in heaven. You shall be saved. And this is the indispensable condition upon which God has entailed salvation. Quote, if ye, and by the way, ye, for those who don't know, means you all. If ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Close quote. And, having thus opened the text, I may say unto you, as Moses said unto Israel, quote, Behold, I have set before you this day blessing and cursing, life and and death, close quote, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Therefore choose what you will have. I have set before you life. If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And I have set before you death. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Therefore now choose for yourself whether you will be saved or damned 
whether you will live or die. Eight doctrinal conclusions drawn from the text. Before I come to the exposition and application of our text, Romans chapter 8, verse 13, I would first like to present seven or eight general principles so you may see the strength of the text and how many such observations this short text will afford. I will only name them briefly. Number one, consider the people unto whom the Apostle Paul is writing to. If you live after the flesh, you shall die. Well, they were not wicked men, men in a state of paganism or unbelievers, but those who were in a converted state, true believers. And yet Paul delivers this warning unto them. And from this I would have you notice. And here's the doctrine. Warnings and threatenings are to be pressed upon both the converted and the unconverted. The word of God is compared not only to milk, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, which is of a pleasant taste, but also to salt, Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. For the godly have a great deal of rottenness and corruption in them, which must be eaten out and cured by the salt of the word, thus rendering them pure and spotless. Number two, the Apostle Paul preaches not only comfort to believers that they are given the gift of justification by God's grace, and that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8 verse 1, but he likewise preaches threatenings unto them, and from which we are to observe another doctrine. Believers must not be taught only doctrines of comfort and consolation. They must also be taught doctrines of terror. Those who handle only doctrines of comfort, never pressing their hearers to duty, or encouraging men unto the practice of godliness, they will teach only half the will of God. Number three, the apostle not only preaches terror and threatenings, but also doctrines of comfort. And from this, observe another doctrine. When ministers preach doctrines of terror and threatening, they ought to mingle them with doctrines of comfort and consolation. And even as those who only preach doctrines of comfort are blameworthy, so likewise are those who never preach comfort, for a variety of doctrines gives the pastor's ministry a greater luster, beauty, and effectiveness in the hearts of his hearers. Number four. Notice the order the apostle uses here. First, he preaches the doctrines of terror. Then he preaches the doctrines of comfort. Quote, if ye live after the flesh, 
ye shall die. That's the statement of terror. But if ye through the Spirit mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. That's the doctrine of comfort. And from this we may observe the following doctrine. When Christians grow sensual, wanton, careless, and remiss in duties, laying aside the holy watchfulness and care which they formerly had, well, at such times as these, doctrines of terror are more needful and necessary than doctrines of comfort, especially in 2022. Number five. Notice that the phrase, through the Spirit, is included in the latter part of the verse. Notice that the former part does not read, if ye through the power of the devil do live after the flesh. Yet, in the latter part, these words are added, if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And from this observe another doctrine. A man may commit sin by his own strength, but he cannot mortify sin without the help of the Holy Spirit. You that are a single man, as soon destroy a whole army of men with your own hand as subdue one sin by your own power. Any man may wound himself, but not every man can heal himself. You may commit sin, but you cannot purge out sin. A man may easily run down a hill, but it is very difficult getting back up that hill. And thus a man may easily commit sin, but he cannot mortify sin except by the strength of the Holy Spirit. Number six. If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh, and here observe further, another doctrine. In every regenerate man, there are some deeds, remainders, and relics of sin and corruption, which still remain. Number seven, and from this we may learn. Doctrine. Christians, like other men, stand in need of mortification. Everyone has some unbridled passion, or untamed affection, or unruly lust within them that needs to be tamed. Sometimes even the godliest men need to have their corruptions tamed, hampered, and mortified just as much as the worst of men in the world. Number eight. Lastly, we may observe from the words this doctrinal conclusion. Men may expect their condition in the next world to be answerable to their carriage and conversation in this world. Are you someone that gives way to the vain and sinful desires and the corrupt motions of your own heart? Let me now warn you that as surely as you are alive this day, if you continue 
to go on in this course, you will die and be damned forever. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if you are a man who lay or woman, if you are a person who labors to bridle and subdue your unruly lusts and untamed affections in such a way that grace may gain the victory over your corruptions and that sin may not rule and reign in your mortal body, you are indeed traveling on the way that leads to everlasting life. Therefore, I beseech you, beg you, my brothers and sisters, do not reason thus with yourselves. If I shall be saved, I shall be saved even if I live ever so profanely. And if I shall be damned, I shall be damned regardless of anything I do to the contrary. Do not entertain such thoughts. Don't even let them enter your mind. For here you see the scriptures telling you explicitly that if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. That's an if ye live after the flesh. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. An examination of the first doctrine. Thus I have given you these eight doctrinal conclusions from the general scope and aspect of the words. I shall now begin to draw out three more doctrines which I intend to focus upon. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. From which observe this doctrine. Doctrine number one. Living for the world and following after the sinful motions and corrupt dictates of nature without laboring to mortify and subdue them is that which will bring men and women to death and damnation. I say without laboring to mortify and subdue them because living after the flesh is set in opposition to mortifying the deeds of the flesh. If you live after the flesh without endeavoring to mortify and subdue the motions of it, this will bring you to death and damnation. In Galatians chapter 6 verse 8, that apostle says, quote, He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting, close quote. Now, sowing to the flesh means following after the desires of the flesh. And those who do so shall reap damnation by it. You that sow your seeds of sin shall one day reap your harvest in hell. 
you will inherit damnation and hell fire forever. If you sow to the flesh, you shall of the flesh reap corruption. I shall only address this doctrine in this chapter, because my primary intention for the remainder of the book is to expand upon the other branch of the text. If ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Therefore I shall only answer one query, give you a point of practical use, and thus conclude. Well, here comes a question. Some may ask, if it is true that those who live after the flesh must die, then how may I know and be assured that I am someone that lives after the flesh, and that sin is not subdued and mortified in my soul? Here's the answer. I shall give you two general discoveries, how you may know whether sin is unmortified in you or not, by your carriage, both before and after the commission of any sin. Number one, sin is unmortified in you if before committing any sin, letter A, there is a longing and hankering desire in your soul to actually commit the sin, and you secretly plot and plan how you might act it out. Well, this is precisely how the scriptures describe an unmortified man. Quote, He deviseth mischief upon his bed. He setteth himself in a way that is not good, and he abhorreth not evil, close quote. In other words, he doesn't hate evil. Psalm 36, verse 4, and see also Proverbs chapter 6, verse 14. When a man studies and schemes how to act upon a sinful desire, and carefully plans how he might carry it out in secrecy, well, this is evidence that he has an unmortified heart. For in such deliberate debates and rational consultations, he longs to set himself in a way that is not good. And if this is the case with you, that you plot and you study and you contrive how you might commit sin, well, it's a strong argument that the power of sin is not subdued and mortified in you. Letter B. A corruption is unmortified in the soul when a man is more eager to commit the sin unto which he is tempted than he is to resist it. When a man is so ablaze with zeal and eagerness to pursue the satisfaction of a lust that he casts away all thoughts of resistance. Well, such a man clearly has an unmortified heart. A godly man who has the power of mortifying grace 
working in his heart. Well, he may fall into the same sins as you do, yet he confronts them as adversaries and takes more care to resist sin than to act it out. He or she fights it. Fights it tooth and nail so that they don't commit the sin. But if all your thoughts are taken up in how to satisfy your lust and to act upon this sin in secrecy without any resistance, well, this is a sign of a very unmortified heart. Letter C. When a man never puts forth his strength in prayer against those corruptions to which he is most subject, when he is assaulted by his lusts and sins day after day and yet never goes to God in prayer to plead for strength and mortifying grace to resist and subdue these corruptions. This is a sure sign of an unmortified heart. In Psalm 51, verse 15, David says, quote, O Lord, open thou my lips, close quote. And one may observe from this that as long as David lay under the guilt of his sin, his mouth was shut, and he did not pray to God. Now, after he confesses his sin, he begs for God to open his lips, that he might, quote, show forth his praise, close quote. That's verse 15, part B. As long as your mouth is shut, so that you cannot pray against your own corruptions, it is a sign that sin is not yet mortified in you. Letter D. When corruptions and temptations trouble and disturb you in your holy duties, when a man is participating in an ordinance and a lust tempts him there, filling his heart with wickedness and worldly-mindedness. When sin and corruption so occupies your heart that you cannot recall what a minister has said an hour after preaching, this argues that you have a very unmortified heart. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 11, God says, quote, In my house have I found their wickedness. Close quote. When you give way to sinful thoughts and covetous imaginations, even in the house of God, in the midst of holy duties, this reveals not only an unmortified heart, but a brazen one as well. And even as many young men come to church to ogle the beautiful young women, cherishing their lust and immorality, even in the presence of God, 
So the devil ravishes and deflowers these men in God's presence also. Oh, take heed of this, for it is evidence that you live after the flesh when you give way to such sinful temptations in holy duties, when instead you should be worshiping God through his ordinances. Letter E. When thinking back upon your former sinfulness does not humble you, but instead stirs up your corruptions, uh, corruptions afresh in the heart, so that you plot and contrive how you might sin the same sins again. And this is evidence that sin is unmortified in your heart. Perhaps in former times you were a drunkard, and now you call this sin to mind with delight, and consider how you might begin drinking again. Or perhaps you were a fornicator or an adulterer, and now, when you remember it, you consider how you might commit this sin again. This is a sign of a very unmortified heart. In Ezekiel chapter 23, verses 19 through 21, quote, Thus thou callest to remembrance the lewdness of thy youth in bruising thy teats by the Egyptians for the paps of thy youth, close quote. By calling to remembrance their adulteries in Egypt, the children of Israel fell again into the pursuit of their sinful pleasures. Letter F. When a temptation to sin is quickly and easily closed with, when you can commit a great sin with only a small temptation, when your heart reacts like gunpowder to the spark of sin, touch it and it takes. As it was with the young man that the harlot met in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 22, where it is said, quote, He went after her straight away. Close quote. This is a sign of an unmortified heart. Thus, I have given you six characters of an unmortified heart before committing any sin. Now, there are three more characteristics of an unmortified heart which are apparent after the commission of any sin. Number two, sin is unmortified in you if after committing any sin. Letter A, you find more joy in the pleasure of the sin than you do sorrow for committing it. If you derive more enjoyment from the sweetness of sin than you do sorrow over the evil of sin, it is a sign of an unmortified heart. Letter B. When you cannot endure a reproof for any sin which you have committed, this also argues an unmortified heart. When men 
are like nettles who, when you touch them ever so slightly, they sting you. And so, when you are told of your drunkenness, uncleanness, or some other sin, you cannot bear it. But instead, you rage, brawl, wrangle, tell someone judge not. Well, this shows that you are asleep and dead in sin. For you cannot endure a reproof, nor permit yourself to be awakened out of it. It is a sure sign that you love your sin well, when you cannot bear to hear it spoken against. The Apostle says in James chapter 1, verse 19, quote, Let every man, in this case that means everybody, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Close quote. When the word of God reproves you for a sin, you should be slow to wrath and not apt to be enraged at every reproof, but instead, quote, to receive with meekness that engrafted word that is able to save your souls, close quote. That's James 1, verse 21. An unmortified heart is very ready to storm, fume, and fret when it is reproved. Letter C. When you take more care after committing a sin to keep it secret, from the view and knowledge of others than to repent and be humbled for it in the presence of God. When you labor to hide it rather than repent of it, this proceeds from the predominance of sin and corruption within your heart. Thus, I have given you nine characteristics of an unmortified heart. May the Lord Jesus Christ give you all grace to seriously inquire into your own souls whether you are a mortified man or woman or not. Now we come to the use of reproof. If it is true that those who live after the flesh shall die, then, oh, how blameworthy are those who incur this dismal judgment of eternal death. Instead of killing their sins, they allow sin to kill their souls. It is reported of the basilisk that if you do not kill him, he will kill you. And the same is true here. If you do not kill your sins, your sins will be the death of your souls. Therefore, how blameworthy are you if you would rather permit sin to kill your soul than to take any pains to mortify and subdue your sin? I have read of a man that loved his pet fox so well 
that even after the fox had pulled out the bowels of one of his children, yet he would not part with it. And in the same way, I fear there are many who harbor such ravenous lusts and corruptions within their hearts that will destroy their souls, and yet they will not part with them, but instead permit them to rule and reign in their hearts without ever going to God in prayer to beg for mortifying grace so that these sins might be subdued and kept under. If ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. And now for discussion or personal reflection on the chapter. Number one, explain what is meant by the term living after the flesh. What is its inevitable outcome? Number two, does the author differentiate between a Christian who occasionally lapses into sin and an unbeliever whose lifestyle is characterized by a wholesale pursuit of sinful pleasures with regard to the outcome promised in the text, ye shall die? Number three, the author provides several litmus tests to aid the believer in self-examination by observing the attitudes and behaviors of the heart both before and after the committing of any sin. Briefly list or summarize them. Number four, set aside time to pray and meditate on the truths of this teaching. Let them illuminate the dark recesses of your private world. Write in a journal about your experience. And this is the end of the chapter. Uh, the book can be uh, purchased on Amazon Kindle or Google Books by those respective sites, or you can get the hard copy from www.digitalpuritan.net.